on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about the new obesity guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the first new guidelines in 15 years. Joining me today here in the podcast studio is Luisa Rodriguez. She is board certified an endocrinologist. She sees patients at the Texas Diabetes Clinic. She did her med school and residency in Puerto Rico. Dr. Rodriguez did her fellowship in endocrinology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas Children's. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for being here today in the podcast studio. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You've been working as an endocrinologist for 22 years? Yes. Was this your dream to do what you're doing now? Yes. I came to Texas for my pediatric endocrinology training and had wonderful mentors that inspired me to pursue an academic academic uh, uh, path in, in medicine and um, spent some time in Houston, now in San Antonio. And I work with a wonderful group of colleagues that um, are, are every day, they, they put their heart and soul in what we do and make practicing our, our specialty extremely fun. It's a tough topic, and before we dive into it and get your expertise, here on Pediatrics Now, we love quotes. I love quotes. Uh, can you tell us a, a favorite quote you'd like to share? Of course, and everybody that knows me and my, my colleagues, um, this is a quote that I use very frequently with families, patients, and co-workers. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure from Benjamin Franklin. And um, I'm, I'm a true believer that uh, prevention is, is a key part of, of, of what we do every day uh, as we, 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 we aim to keep our, our kids healthy um, so that they can uh, have a fulfilling life as adults and live to their full potential. I love that quote, and in particular, that prevention. It's, it's a lot easier to prevent obesity than to deal with it once someone has it, right? Correct. And since we're going to talk about the um, AAP guidelines, uh, I have to, to make this disclosure or, 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 or tell the audience that, unfortunately, these guidelines address the evaluation and treatment of the child with obesity. It does not address prevention. The consensus statement um, um, says that this will be addressed in future guidelines. So I'm really looking forward on what the Academy of Pediatrics um, um, recommend practitioners um, like me um, as what are, are the standards to uh, prevent obesity. And Dr. Rodriguez, may I call you Louisa? Yes, please. So Louisa, tell us about these new guidelines. You have them in front of you. It's a lot of papers. Yes. Um, they were uh, published online on January the 9th of this year. And the, um, the guidelines are 74 pages long. They, um, they uh, are written by um, 21 authors uh, with expertise in various areas that are painted for this, for this topic. And um, on, so we have them accessible online. We need to download these and they are um, free access um, uh, to the public. Um, which is a positive thing that no matter where you are, any part of the world, you can access these guidelines. On the AAP website? Correct. Um, what is probably more practical for us BC practitioners is the executive summary that was published in the print version of um, the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics in February. And it is nine pages and it is a succinct summary of uh, the, the guidelines. So tell us, what advice do you have for the pediatric practitioner listener here? Probably we can start by discussing what is new. You know, what is um, different from the prior guidelines and um, we can take it from there. 
as I said, is is an extensive document. Can be overwhelming to to dive into it. Um, but I will be referring mostly to the executive summary. And it starts by advising uh, pediatricians to evaluate um, children at a routine visits for obesity starting at age three years old. Um, so we are encouraged to evaluate at an earlier age and screen for obesity using BMI as a tool. Wow, starting at age three. Correct. Have you ever seen a child who's obese at that young of an age? Yes, um, even infants. Really? Correct. Yes. And this reported, it says obesity is a common, complex, and often persistent chronic disease associated with serious health and social consequences, if not treated. Yet despite the disease's complexity, treatment of obesity can be successful. The current and long-term health of 14.4 million children and adolescents is affected by obesity, making it one of the most common pediatric chronic diseases in the United States. Sounds alarming. Yes, and that's why the the, the guidelines um, ask for us pediatric practitioners to evaluate children since age 2 to 18 years using BMI for um, obesity, screen for comorbidities, and offer the families behavioral life Life, lifestyle modification education in addition to uh, medical treatment that will imply medications and for severe cases that we can talk more in details later bariatric surgery surgical intervention there's a five-year-old who comes into their clinic and they realize according to the BMI this five-year-old is obese what do you do a five-year-old, um, the pediatrician already obtained the BMI, so already assessed, evaluated for obesity. Um, the guidelines encourage us to um, evaluate for comorbidities of excessive weight gain or obesity, and that includes assessment for uh, with a glucose, lipid panel, blood pressure, and um, liver enzymes, specifically AST. Um, we are asked to offer families um, either to refer or enroll in a program that will offer them intensified behavioral lifestyle modification. And the guidelines specifically tell us that programs that are the most successful at inducing weight loss or improvement in BMI in children are those that are consist of at least 26 hours of face-to-face -face contact with the patient and family over a time span of 3 to 12 months. Um, the guidelines also highlight the importance of using motivational interviewing when we are assessing these patients. And what is motivational interviewing? Most uh, we are, we're very familiar with it, but is a um, is a technique in which we um, we let the patient drive the goals, um, whether what is important for them. Um, and we motivate them to identify those areas that the family and the patient are willing to change. Um, this care um, should be um, also delivered in the context of uh, a chronic uh, medical condition model. These uh, guidelines, they... Um, they want the pediatricians and all pediatric healthcare providers to acknowledge that obesity is a chronic problem and is these patients need uh, lifelong 
um, evaluation and uh, some of them treatment. So it's like uh, we can use hypertension as an example. We identify somebody with hypertension. Um, it, this person is probably going to need um, treatment for, uh, for, for the rest of their life. And uh, the academy makes sure that we wants us to understand that obesity um, follows the same model. It's a chronic medical condition um, that is going to require lifelong um, evaluation, intervention, and treatment. That recommendation, the number of hours, uh, 26 or 27 of nutritional counseling? 26 hours um, of intensive behavioral health lifestyle modification. Is that feasible? It, I mean, there are not that many resources in our area. Just talking about San Antonio alone, or am I wrong on that? I mean, I, wh what advice do you have for pediatricians there and pediatric practitioners? Yes, even within our practice that we are a wellness center, um, and we have a nutritionist available. We have a um, resources to uh, provide counseling on exercise training. Um, it's um, time is a limitation. Sometimes families don't come to the office prepared to, to sit for two, three hours, including the medical evaluation. So it's, it's a time constraint comes from um, several sources. First, family may not, may not be uh, prepared to engage in such amount of, um, of training or hours or have very busy schedules. Uh, we sometimes don't have, we have a large turnover of dietitians in our clinic. Sometimes we don't, we, we don't have the services available, unfortunately. Um, and um, what do the academy offers uh, practitioners in, in this scenario? First, they acknowledge that these intensified programs are not available readily in, uh, most, uh, for most practitioners um, and centers. Um, in this case, they advise for us to provide um, frequent weight monitoring. In other words, this is a child that if I cannot have the parents see the dietitian or I don't have a dietitian close where I practice or resources that are my patients can access, at least I can give them appointments monthly to uh, monitor the weight and provide feedback to the parents. Um, identify resources in the community. Um, in our city, for example, we have um, HEB, who has recently launched a program where um, they have dietitians providing counseling to, to the community, and that includes children, that we can refer them to have the counseling through, through the community. Um, but the, uh, the academy acknowledges that um, if we don't have such intensified programs, then we offered um, what we do have available as 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 intensified as it it it, it, will, it is a, it comes for example and if not it will imply the provider to see the patient um, to monitor weight um, with um, relative frequency. So at University Hospitals Texas Diabetes Institute is your wellness clinic is it on Mondays half day? Um, is I usually see patients on uh, Wednesday all day dedicated to uh, wellness. We have a school-based clinic, and the goal for us was to be close to the school setting where we can get referrals from um, school nurses when they do the acanthosis um, screenings. Um, and they could point the parents. We have a, a clinic here that can assist your child with weight issues and the darkening of the skin in your neck. Um, I do also see uh, wellness patients um, half day on Thursdays. Tell me about the, what do you mean by the darkening of the skin in the neck? Um, excessive weight gain or obesity um, is comes uh, is associated commonly with insulin resistance. The more carbohydrates, starchy foods that we consume, that is going to generate increased insulin secretion, and that has an effect in our skin 
of darkening um, areas, uh, specifically or more commonly the neck, um, in the axillary area, inguinal areas, um, flexor areas, and the higher the insulin levels, which is exacerbated by ingestion of sugary drinks and um, high carbohydrate content foods is going to uh, lead to um, more darkening of the skin. Well, I remember when we were talking at the Texas Diabetes Institute and one of my daughters had gained some weight during the pandemic and there was one piece of advice that was really helpful for her uh, that I told her about where you had said you talked to your patients about the sugary drinks like really are are we meant as humans to really is metabolize the a high calorie drink and is it, it it's a lot worse to drink our calories right than eat them or what what do you want to say about that yes um one of the dietary approaches that the academy um, um recommends is the five two one zero and um, it, this means that we can advise pa parents to, we should advise parents to offer at least five servings of fresh fruits and vegetables, limit the screen time that the child spends um, in a day to less than two hours. Total screen time, in including TV, phone. Correct. And the zero comes for, one the one is one hour of exercise, daily ideally and the zero is for zero sugary drinks we consider those empty calories and i do explain to parents that um, the human body ideally um, we should consume water and ch growing children need milk um, as they benefit from the calcium and vitamin d content of milk but sugary drinks um, are discouraged by the american academy of pediatrics and um, is they're just empty calories with low nutritional value, and the excessive consumption leads to weight gain. Those are easy calories for us to store um, in our adipose tissue. Um, so I always tell parents, um, we want your child to chew the calories, not to drink them. Um, and if they cannot remove the sugary drinks from their diet, it's going to be very challenging, difficult for them to, to, to have some successful um, weight loss or at least maintain and avoid excessive weight gain. And also, fast food, what is your advice there? We all know it's not good for us. And kids, especially adolescents, seem to be very, to gravitate to fast food. Yes, is is a lot of kids. That's sometimes the most frequent question. Um, can I go to Chick Fil A? Can I go to McDonald's? Um, ideally, we encourage families to have you know home cooked meals um, together and reserve those for special occasions, as those are very calorie dense, um, carbohydrate loaded, fat loaded uh, meals. So we try to discourage um, the consumption of, of fast foods and um, guide the family more towards, you know, home-cooked meals. And how's it going in the school-based clinic? Is it a high school where you are doing your work here in San Antonio, school-based? We are in the Collier um, um, area, and uh, we are right in the middle between a, um, elementary school and middle school. Is that ideal to have a doctor in the school to, I mean, to deal with this complex disease that is becoming more and more common of obesity? Um, I think it's a great resource to have as uh, kids get screened routinely for acanthosis at school. Parents get a letter, take to your pediatrician, and um, we feel that our presence there in the community um, increases the access of families um, to this uh, care and evaluation as pediatricians will screen for comorbidities. The next step is to recommend treatment or further evaluation with a specialist. And in our case, um, we do want to see kids with glucose intolerance of prediabetes um, and um, that to assist them with the uh, nutritional behavioral lifestyle modification. 
So we talked about the sugary drinks, fast foods. What are a couple of other pieces of advice the, the pediatric practitioner who has 10 other patients waiting and five more minutes with this patient, what should we be saying to the patient and the, the parent or caregiver? Um, going back to the guidelines, um, they consist of 12 key um, key statements um, that guide the pediatrician and pediatric healthcare providers on the evaluation and assessment of um, children with obesity. And now, since you asked, it also um, asks uh, providers to offer patients and families um, medical treatment for obesity in children older than 12 years of age um, using medications or drugs. And the um, online consensus statement provide very specific information on what are those medications that we can use to assist patients in the weight loss process to accelerate it, um, children's in this case, and these are metformin, which is a medication that is usually um, uh, commonly used for diabetes. In the setting of prediabetes, children with prediabetes, um, the academy um, favors the use of this medication as it's going to assist um, the weight loss and it's also going to treat the prediabetes. Other medications are um, um, topiramate, which is a medication that is commonly used for um, migraines and seizures. Topiramate can decrease the appetite. Um, and um, patients that uh, take it consistently twice a day. Um, the third medication is um, glucagon, um, glucagon-like uh, peptides, or GLP-1 analogs. These are injectable medications that are um, new in the field of endocrinology. They have been in the market for probably 10 years, but now we have data that children older than 12 um, can benefit from this treatment, and um, they are FDA-approved, specifically Victosa. And the second medication is semaglutide. Um, the commercial name is Wegovi, and Wegovi is injected once a week. The Academy also lists Fentermin as a short-term medication we can use for less than three months. Um, Vivens as well. And um, when you read the guidelines, it seems like the Academy asks pediatricians to offer these medications and treat with these medications. Um, the statement also clarifies that it's up to the comfort level of the provider and uh, families that may be interested in medical treatment um, with drugs um, can be referred to uh, weight management centers or providers um, that may be comfortable with that treatment. In our case, because we use metformin a lot for prediabetes and diabetes, we use um, GLP-1 analogs to treat diabetes as well. Um, we can assist um, treating patients with obesity and um, comorbidities or uh, such due to the obesity with these medications. So pediatricians don't need to feel, you know, do I have to do this? Um, we are a good resource um, to, to refer these patients with obesity and a comorbidity um, that may be interested, the families may be interested in pursuing this treatment. We are happy to help with it. And I'll put the referral fax number in the chat, um, yes. the text of this podcast. Um, and we have listeners outside of the San Antonio area, but the bottom line also with these new, new guidelines, if you can refer out to a wellness specialist, please do, right? Correct. Um, but what you're talking about, too, can that be handled in the primary care setting and those medications prescribed? I mean, is it... With such few resources, is it, in a lot of ways, it's up to the pediatric practitioner to navigate this? Or what do you recommend there? If they feel, com feel comfortable with monitoring for side effects, adjusting the doses, you know, for example, metformin needs to be titrated. It has a titration schedule. Same thing for the injectable 
medications, the GLP-1 analogs. They have a titration schedule, um, very specific contraindications, for example, for um, GLP-1 receptor analogs. If there is a family history of thyroid nodules or thyroid cancer, they are contraindicated. Um, so the provider that may feel um, that they have a uh, knowledge, are comfortable monitoring for contraindications, side effects, they're welcome to treat the patient. The reality is that these are drugs that are most used by specialists, and um, I feel that uh, most practitioners will feel uh, more inclined to, to refer. But, yeah, the academy asks um, for pediatric providers, including pediatricians, to offer the treatment. They also... Um, um, make sure that we understand that um, this is, um, we need to engage the family. I mean, if the family is not interested, it, then we, we can monitor for comorbidities and provide just, you know, basic education on behavioral and lifestyle modification, that medications are not um, something that all families are going to be comfortable or will, wa will like to pursue um, uh, for their children. Looking at this report, it also says obesity has long been stigmatized as a reversible consequence of personal choices, but has in reality complex genetic, psychologic, socioeconomic, and environmental contributors. An increased understanding of the impact of the social determinants of health on the chronic disease of obesity, along with the heightened appreciation of the impact of the chronicity and severity of obesity-related comorbidities, has enabled broader and deeper understanding of the complexity of both obesity, the risk, and treatment. What are your thoughts there? Yes, is is. Um it calls for us to do a comprehensive evaluation that is um, that we approach patients and families with respect, compassion, avoid to inflict trauma as a lot of these children and families um, of obese uh, children, they have already suffered um, the consequences of stigma. Um, I've had patients in clinics that when I ask them, you know, what is your motivation to lose weight? If they say so, I ask them specifically, why do you want to lose weight? And um, some of, especially the teenagers, they tell me, oh, I just want to be able to fit in the seats at the movies and being able to go to the movies with my friends or being able to go to Six Flags and enjoy the rides because there are some rides I cannot do because mm. of my weight. Um, it's, um, it's, uh, we need to be very sensitive that these patients have already suffered some stigma. Uh, they, can, they are also um, high risk and um, very frequently they're bullied at school mm. um, by their classmates. Um, so it's, it's, we need to approach these um, with um, respect, empathy, and um, some parents also consider the, the word obese um, offensive. I tend to use more um, excess weight when I'm discussing this with the families. Um, the academy also suggests to use the term BMI to discuss with the families um, that we are going to talk about the same way you tell, you know, the blood pressure. I'm going to talk to you about your, your, your child's BMI. Um, it has to do with, uh, you know, weight balance. Um, the academy also um, um, so, uh, recommends to to um, approach this in a family-centered, family-centered manner, meaning that um, we need to address um, any social economic barriers the, the family may have, and um, provide access or resources in the community. For example, some um, resources that we very frequently offer our families are um, uh, lists of parks that are accessible or close to their neighborhood, um, the YMCA, the food bank if there is food insecurity, 
um, such a thing is, is extremely important. And the San Antonio Food Bank is pretty amazing. Yes, it is. I'm so impressed with them. Is that what this report, when they're talking about the whole child, is that what you're talking about here, looking at the whole child? Is that we involve the, the family, um, address the social envir- environment, social barriers, and um, also provide um, um, mental health resources um, at some of them also suffer um, uh, the effects of bullying or stigmatization being stigmatized because of their weight so yes is there anything else Louisa you want to mention before we move on to it to our case um, yes probably the last um, um, key uh, one of the last key statements that is is new in these guidelines is the recommendation for um, uh, bariatric surgery and this has caused um, tremendous alarm and um, in several groups, families, and physicians as well. And I would like to highlight that is the Academy asks us to offer families of uh, children with a BMI above the 95th percentile, severe obesity defined as um, 120 percentile above the 95th percentile offer them um, management with uh, surgical metabolic uh, procedures um, which means to refer them to a bariatric surgery program and that's that's our duty to identify it and offer it um, my experience is that a lot of parents um, uh, are, are averse to more invasive interventions um but um if they do um the academy is is providing us the guidance on how to do that what is the 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 age that we can start doing that age 13 and here in san antonio um we there uh the there 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 are some options for uh, pediatricians to refer um, kids to pediatric um, surgery um, which are currently evaluating kids to to perform these surgeries. And is that mainly why these guidelines are, are controversial, that and the medication recommendations? Yes, because it's, it's totally new. It's totally new. Um, it takes it a uh, couple steps further from just education and intensified education on dietary behavior and lifestyle it offers as as adjunct as add-on medical treatment and for severe cases surgical treatment so yes um and there are some more conservative practitioners that don't feel comfortable or may not agree um including parents um with such interventions it's 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 something that is optional um intensify lifestyle um modification, dietary modification, we know it works. Um, the problem is that it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong, it's, it's a long-term commitment that we need to have, and the attrition rate even in uh, well-controlled clinical trials could be a 40% drop-off. Um, you know, when we, in clinical practice, probably is even higher. The academy is encouraging uh, providers to offer offer these treatment options to the patients and as adjuncts, you know, still the education, nutrition, exercise counseling um, needs to be ongoing, but they are giving uh, patients options to get assistance with medications to accelerate the weight loss. Um, And um, I feel it's it's good to have options and um, not everybody is a good candidate for bariatric surgery, um, but there is a subset of patients that will benefit from it, and um, the academy is giving us the guidance on how to do that safely. When, Louisa, in your expertise, when does the pediatric practitioner not need to refer out? When can it be handled in the 
primary care center? Is it any time before that BMI reaches the obesity level, or what would you say? Um, I will feel a patient with moderate to severe obesity and a comorbidity. The comorbidity needs to be uh, treated, evaluated, and um, by saying this, um, I'm talking about, uh, for example, prediabetes, elevated liver enzymes, um, hypertension. Um, in those settings, probably the pediatrician will, will like to refer to, you know, the endocrinology clinic for prediabetes, the GI for um, evaluation of the liver enzymes. But in the absence of comorbidities um, of those of those uh, cases, um, the pediatric practitioner can um, uh, start the conversation and refer patients for counseling, dietary counseling, and um, uh, and close monitoring of the weight. They will those patients that have no, probably not uh, moderate to severe obesity could be followed and with ongoing screening for comorbidities with a pediatrician. Is there one medication that you would recommend is best in the primary care setting to help in this case, or is it hard to say? It's difficult to say, yes. Um, uh, for example, metformin is, will be a, a great choice for patients with prediabetes, but in the absence of prediabetes, um, probably if um, obesity is severe, I will consider and probably a more potent agent for weight loss, like an injectable GLP-1 analog. And for those, probably the, special, the specialist will have more experience with those. Um, and the setting of hypertension, fentermin, may not be the best, the, the, best, the best idea because it's going to increase uh, the blood pressure. So it's something that needs to be individualized um, according to the comorbidities for every patient. And do you recommend, because it can be intimidating when, you, as the pediatric practitioner, you know how much weight the child really probably should lose, but is it best to start out with five pounds, talking about that, or what is your advice there? Yes, I usually try to, um, the approach should be family-centered, and um, so always taking into consideration what are the, uh, priorities and motivations and goals for the family. Um, let's say in the scenario the family doesn't seem to be very motivated, I usually try to guide them towards the goal of let's stop gaining weight. Stop gaining weight is, 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 a, is a good place to start. As mm -hmm. the child is growing, they're stretching, it's, it's if, if that's all we can do, stop or decelerate the weight gain, that's, that's uh, tremendous health benefits long-term. Um, that's great advice. Yes. And um, so I usually set that as the first goal. And we want uh, patients to lose weight um, in a healthy manner. We need to be very well aware that by uh, placing a lot of emphasis in diet, body shape, and body imaging, um, there is a high risk as well for um, eating disorders, um, especially in females. So we need to be very cautious with, you know, establishing a goal. You know, I tend not to tell patients I want you to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds. Um, I tend to um, um, let them lead um, what is our goal. And um, I tell them that, you know, not gaining weight is, is a win. And um, our weight loss, we want it to be, you know, slow but progressive and um, for them to get good nutrition, good calories. Um, and um, it, I try not to put a, a number of how much I want, I want them to lose. Should children be weighing themselves every night? Or what is your advice there? Um, if they have a scale... I encourage parents to probably check the weight without shoes um, once a week. But more frequently than that, probably there is no benefit. Uh, the reality is that a lot of families don't have a scale at home. And um, in intensified programs, yeah, following the weight um, is recommended to be as frequent as, as, as weekly or biweekly.
um, to monitor outcomes. Are we ready for a case? Yes. Okay, let's take a case. So Jane is a 10-year-old Hispanic female with a history of asthma, referred to the Wellness Center for Evaluation of Excessive Weight Gain and Abnormal Laboratories Obtained at Her Last Well Check. Her mother reports Jane's weight gain accelerated over the past three years during the COVID restrictions. She used to participate in PE, volleyball at school, and stopped participating on these during the pandemic, like a lot of us did. Jane is on inhaled steroids for asthma, and one to two times a year is prescribed oral steroids for exacerbations. Jane's a picky eater. She skips breakfast as she's not hungry in the morning. Her diet includes a variety of fruits and meats, but she's limited on vegetables. She does not like milk, drinks water, juice, or tea with meals. Jane does not skip meals. What do you do? Yes. Um, we I start by looking at what are the risk factors, medically speaking. I see that she has asthma that has been exposed to steroids. We need to identify medications um, that may be you know, causing or contributing to the weight gain. So I try to keep an accounting of that, especially in case with asthma, as we know that steroids induce uh, weight gain. Um, and educate the parent. And, you know, it's important that we control the asthma so that we avoid exacerbations and the use of oral steroids, as that is going to counter um, any efforts that we may be doing with our behavioral lifestyle modifications. Um, second, um, I acknowledge the limitations we've had, um, you know, socially and um, economically over the last three years with the COVID-19 restrictions. Um, the families have been, you know, spending more time indoors, um, probably opting for cheaper processed foods as, you know, um, this ha uh, had a great economic impact in some families losing their, their, their jobs. Um, and I also highlight in this case something that is very common, the picky eater, the child that sometimes only eats chicken nuggets um, and does not like to drink water. Um, these, these parents need a lot of support because it's, it's not easy to, um, you come home motivated and you boil your broccoli, cut your carrots, and the child does not eat them. Uh, we give them practical advices on how to involve the child in the grocery shopping, um, probably, you know, to, to uh, also uh, take them or uh, prepare a garden at home so that they can collect some of their vegetables, mm. um, involve the child in the cooking process, um, and lead by example. I advise the parents, you know, we all need to sit, eat the salad together and make, you know, big impressions. Oh, this is so good. So the child gets motivated to try them. Um, it's very difficult with children with autism. In those, we need to do more so use so more sophisticated um, techniques. But um, these are um, some of the things that we start highlighting, educating the family, trying to modify um, before I embark in the medical medical evaluation. So continuing with this case, the mother plans to enroll Jane in the YMCA for summer camp. Jane spends three hours a day on her tablet or cell phone. She had her first menstrual cycle at age nine. They denied symptoms of fatigue, dry skin, hair loss, polydyspezia, polyura, or constipation. Birth history, she was born at 34 weeks. Mom had gestational diabetes and was on insulin. She had a vaginal birth weight of 5 pounds, 11 ounces. There's a family history of pertinent prediabetes and mother, diabetes in grandparents, and hypertension. Prior labs and growth charts reviewed from PCP's office visits are concerning for elevated hemoglobin A1c, high at 5.7% in the prediabetes range and low vitamin D, 25 hydroxy of 11 nanograms ml per milliliters. Yeah, it's a low vitamin D level. We aim to have a vitamin D above 30 to be considered vitamin D sufficient. So in this case, Jane has prediabetes and vitamin D deficiency. The PCP has already 
um, screened for comorbidities. She had, you know, also brings a lipid panel, liver enzymes. All those are normal. Her blood pressure is within normal limits. Um, the PCP has already um, um, facilitated my job, as I know this. Uh, she already has pre-diabetes. There is strong family history of diabetes. Mom had diabetes during pregnancy. This tells me that you know the genetic predisposition to develop diabetes is very high, and um, lifestyle modification. Uh, um, is extremely important. Um, and her weight, we should mention Jane's weight is uh, 148 pounds. So at age 10? Mm-hmm. At age 10. And tell us about her height. So in this case, you put 1.4 meters, which is around the 50th percentile for her age. So she has a, a good height. Um, Blood pressure 128 over 64. Correct, and the systolic is slightly elevated for her age. Um, the systolic is, is, is within the acceptable percentiles. Um, we are frequently, we're seeing more commonly girls having um, entering into puberty earlier, and um, it's something that we're seeing as a, as a consequence of, you know, the excessive weight and obesity. Um it's um, I when I see girls that are premenarchal before they have puberty, I bring that up to the parents. You know, another motivator for us to control um, um, your daughter's weight is uh, to prevent from um, progressing and going through puberty too early. Um, as we know, there is uh, is a known association, um, and. Um, I I always try to highlight the positive. You know, parents usually they you know the pediatrician already rang the alarm, and parents already come with some plans to get the kid more active. Um, they tend to forget about the screen time, and um, it's important for us to assess um, um, how how much is that, and to bring to their attention um, how we need to limit it um, to less than two hours. Um, I encourage the parents, you know, to to plan chores for the child, keep the child busy. The more time we have in our hands, then the more we think about food. More frequently, the child will come to the pantry or to the kitchen, open the fridge to get snacks. If we keep the child busy, we deviate the attention from food. And another advice I tend to give parents uh, frequently is not to not to um, reward good behavior with food. Um, very frequently I hear, oh, the doctor ordered labs. After this, I'm going to take you to McDonald's. So I say, oh, mom, um, you know what will be better if, you know, we I take you to buy some stickers, go to the dollar store, we're going to get some stickers or new notebooks or a journal. Um, that way we are not compensating good behavior with, with food. That's a great advice. I know that's what my mom did after we went to the doctor. We got to go to... <laughs> Get fast food somewhere. <laughs> um, and in the clinic, we try to encourage, you know, uh, ourselves to, you know, bring the healthier options to 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 do what we what we preach to our patients. Um, and um, but when this we have we have the more calorie dense, then to stick to to healthy portions. And at San Antonio, I mean, are we considered the diabetes capital? of the United States or anything you want to say about that? We are in the diabetes belt. Yeah, the southern states, um, there is a higher incidence of diabetes, so we are considered to be um, at the center of the diabetes belt, um, but it is higher higher prevalence so um, and higher genetic predisposition. So it includes other states. It's not just in Texas or San Antonio alone where the prevalence is high. Correct. Tell me, Louisa, what do you like to do in your spare time? Um, I'm a working mom, so my spare time, um, I I try to be a present parent. I I, I try to enjoy um, um, mingling with other parents mm-hmm. at soccer games and build up relations. Um, my kids' parents become my uh, friends. My kids' friends' parents become my mm-hmm. f- the parents become my friends. So I, I try to build uh, my social network through the connections that my child I- has. 
on my busy life before children, I used to take dance classes, go to the gym, um, you know, working full time and and being a, a working mother limits a lot the time that that I have for for those activities. Um, I try to multitask a lot. Um, so if I'm hiking, <laughs> if I hike, I I take time to call friends to keep in touch with them to call um, my parents um, so in my free time I I, I I enjoy being a present parent present daughter and friend and master the art of multitasking wonderful and is there anything before we wrap up that you want to say that we didn't cover it, it seems intimidating do you have hope that we can really tackle this issue of obesity and make a big difference? Um, I feel these guidelines are, 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 are comprehensive, uh, provide a lot of inf- evidence-based medicine towards, you know, what is a effective, um, intensified lifestyle um, modification program, um, also guidance on medical treatment, medications, and um, also uh, includes uh, surgical options. Um, it I feel I feel that now we have more tools to um, fight obesity and help our kids um, lose weight. But of course, as I previously mentioned, um, not all families are are going to be um, opting for this. Um, and um, the academy gives me the tools to also help them with intensified um, health, um, lifestyle, modification. Dr. Luisa Rodriguez, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Oh, it was a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.